Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glaskell from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Our regular co-host, Susan Wachter from Penn IUR, is away today. And I'm coming to you from my home office, which is very apropos because today's topic is working from home. How many Americans are still doing it with COVID-19 in its third year? And what work from home means for companies and, of course, cities, counties, suburbs, states. Here at the midway point of 2022, offices in the nation's 10 biggest cities are only 44% occupied on average. And the folks at Castle Systems, who run the data weekly, they figure that many municipalities are well below that. New York City, for example, is stuck around 40%, San Francisco, San Jose, and Philly which is Penn IUR's home, they're in the 30s. A lot of dark offices out there and a lot of empty subway seats as well, especially on Mondays and Fridays. Now, we have a great panel today to get to the bottom of what all this means and whether WFH, as it's known, will bring big long-term changes for work life, office property values, city real estate taxes, property and commercial mortgage markets, and more. Our experts include two leading academic economists, Nick Bloom of Stanford University and co-founder of WFH Research, and Stan von Nirenberg of the Columbia Business School. We'll also hear from Andrew Ryan, president of the Citizens Budget Commission in New York City, and Lauren Weber, who covers work-like issues for the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to you all. So before we begin, just a few short notes. Special briefing is brought to you with generous support from the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. We've taken audience questions in advance, and we'll get to as many as we can in the Q&A section, so please stick around for that. And you can view and listen to archived versions of this and almost three dozen other special briefings on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. By the way, watch for the Special Briefing podcast this fall on our websites and wherever you download your podcasts. So whether you're tuned in today from your office, your home, or your vacation condo at the beach, let's turn now to the subject at hand, WFH. To start us off with the big picture, we'll turn to Nick Bloom. Nick gave us some fascinating background material to post to the Special Briefing event website, and there's even more at WFH Partners. Nick, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Bill. So I, I'm going to start off with a, a rough overview of where we are with working from home. So work from homes increased about sixfold in the US, which is just an enormous rise. So to put numbers on it, about 5% of people work full paid days from home before the pandemic. That's about one in 20. And it's gone to around 30% now. So that is an astronomical rise. I mean, we've never seen anything like that before. It was doubling roughly every 12 years before. So that's kind of 30 to 40 years of growth in just, just a short period of the pandemic. 
as Bill mentioned, it looks like we're kind of at steady state. You know, for anyone hoping that uh, more people are returning to the office, it doesn't look like that in our data and Castle data. So if you look at month by month for most of this year, things are flat. So I think this is the new normal. What's it look like in terms of individuals? Well, to give you kind of the big picture, roughly half of Americans do not work from home. So I think about folks working in you know, retail. If you go to Chipotle, the, you know, the folks at the front can't work from home. A lot of manufacturing, uh, essential services, teaching. There's a various variety of jobs. Of the other half, around a third of folks, probably pretty much everyone listening, I'm guessing, is hybrid. So in the office, say, two, three days a week, at home, two, three days a week. These are pretty much covering all managers, professionals, office workers, basically university graduates. And then the, the, the third group, which is about a sixth in total, these folks are fully remote. So this is things like, you know, payroll, IT support, some kind of HR processes, et cetera. So I'm going to focus mainly on hybrid. I know it's only a third of people, but it's about half of payroll because these folks are the, you know, the, the, be- the most highly paid. And it's probably everyone that's listening or close to, and it's also the hardest to deal with. So hybrid has become dominant for professional service firms, graduates, managers, and there are four reasons why people have been going for hybrid. The first is employees really like it. So if you survey employees, which I've been doing in multiple waves, they report numbers like it's equivalent, getting to work from home two, three days a week, the same as about a five to 10% pay increase. Or in randomized control trials, you see if you offer people the ability to work from home, it tends to reduce quit rates by about a third to a half. So employees really like it a lot. Second, it appears to mildly improve productivity. For example, there are a number of studies, you know, when I'm, you know, maybe the biggest is about, I'm just about to release, actually, we do a randomized control trial on 1,600 managers, professionals working from home two days a week versus in the office full time, and productivity is up like two, three percent. So it appears people are slightly more productive under hybrid. Thirdly, it's important for DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it looks like minorities by gender, by race, in fact, by age, religion, et cetera, they find it slightly more comfortable to work from home two, three days a week. And so if you force people back into the office, that's a group you're going to lose. And then final advantage is space costs. You know, you might have thought this is the big one. So I've been working on working from home for 20 years. And before the pandemic, most people advocated work from home to save on space. Turns out, it does, but not much. And I'll come back to it in a minute. But, you know, so employees like it, improves productivity slightly. It seems to support diversity and it reduces the space. That's why it's here and it's here to stay. In terms of the impact on cities, I'm going to do it in terms of real estate. It's probably an easy way to think about a quick summary. So let's start with retail. Retail, particularly city center retail, has been hit really badly. That's probably, you know, the worst affected area. The reason is kind of obvious. There are less professionals commuting in and out every day. Office workers on average are now only coming to the office about half the time versus close to full-time pre-pandemic. Those same office workers from our data, we know they spend about $10,000 a year on things like food and drink, shopping, entertainment. You take that and you halve it, which is probably roughly what's happening. And it looks like retail expenditure in city centers, places like New York and San Francisco, is down maybe 10, 20%. It's just going to remain permanently down. So what does that mean? It means basically, you know, there's a big hit, as we know. In the long run, just the amount of retail in city centers is going to shrink. So less, you know, Aubonne Pans, Pret-a-Manger, bars, shops, 
some of the real estate is just going to convert probably to residential to other uses. Secondly, offices. So you might think offices are really badly hit. The office market's kind of soft, but it's not terrible. And the reason is work from home is actually, it's very hard to schedule a reduction office space. So I mentioned work from home has gone from 5 to 30% of days. So there's kind of roughly a 25% at least reduction of footfall into offices, maybe more, maybe 30, 40% because offices are very intense and work from home jobs. But from surveys in the UK and the US of around 4,000 firms, we see the drop in office space demand is only about three to 5%. So like, you know, how can this be? How can there be 40% less people and like 5% less space? And the big reason is scheduling. It's really hard to schedule reductions in office space when everyone's working from home on Monday, Friday. So the classic hybrid setup is employers are going, Look, we need you in the office, let's say three days a week. We want you together to be innovative and creative. So maybe, you know, you're going to come in typically Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You're going to get to work from home, say, Monday, Friday. That's quite a common plan. Problem is, of course, you can't sublet office space on Monday, Friday. So most companies, I've probably talked to, you know, hundreds of companies and organizations are saying, yeah, in the long run, we want to reduce office space, but it's really hard. This whole thing is so complicated right now. We're just keeping our space and we're going to maybe see if what we can trim, you know, going forward. Now, finally, residential. I think Stin's going to talk about this a, a fair amount. Residential, what I've seen in the data I've looked at in the terms of change of address data from the postal service or Zillow price data is been this kind of donut effect. So a lot of people have moved out from city centers out to the suburbs. Think if you're in, you know, finance or tech or something. And you, you don't need to come into the office every day. You only need to come in maybe two, three days a week, you're thinking, you know, I just don't need to live in the center. I just don't have to commute as often. I can move out to the suburbs, get a bit of space, get a home office. And we're seeing people do that on mass. So suburbs are getting a bit more dense, a bit more expensive relatively to city centers. So finally, what's the economic impact? I actually think it's mostly good. So to be clear, work from home is generally positive for firms and employees. You know, productivity is up a bit. People are happier. And it's also moving some folks out of city centers that don't probably need to be there. So I'm honestly happy if a bunch of techies and bankers move out to the suburbs and essential service workers relatively becomes more affordable. I mean, if you remember in 2019, certainly living out near San Francisco, the big issue was affordability. And, you know, it's not got any better, but it's certainly, you know, work from homes helped push it in the right direction. My main area of concern, I know, I think Andrew's going to talk for sure about this, is over public finances. So U.S. cities, when I, you, can, you can probably hear I'm English or uh, British. So U.S. cities compared to, say, the U.K. are very tightly defined. So I think of Sadiq Khan in London. That's a huge area. And if people move from the centers out to the suburbs, they still fall under his tax jurisdiction. If you think of San Francisco for London breed. If you move out to the suburbs, you leave what's defined as San Francisco, and it makes it very hard for her public finances. You're still basically working there, but you're coming in less days, not living there, paying less tax. And the biggest worry for me is over public transport. We were discussing previously, but it looks like public transport usage may be down 30, 40% and how to deal with that. With that, I will stop and hand back. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, Nick. Uh, hold that thought about public transport, especially I'm, I'm guessing you're working from home today. Uh, this doesn't look like your typical academic <laughs> office, am I right? <laughs> yeah, you know, if I was to... I probably, I mean, I probably, I will do it. If I had to tilt down, it's not in working from home. I mean, oh, it's yes. a massive room with a huge bed that I can't get rid of. So <laughs> it's not ideal. That's why I'm standing up at a weird angle, in all honesty. 
Well, we're going to progress now to, to, to Stan von Nuremberg, who's also written and researched a lot of the, the, the similar topics that, that you are. And uh, I believe you're also uh, working from home and not on the Columbia campus. Am I right? Well, uh, I'm actually in an in the real life conference right now in Boston. But yes, I've been spending a lot of time working from home lately. Well, please, the floor is yours. And thanks for posting uh, uh, stuff as well. Thank you, William. So excited to share some work with you. It's actually going to jive very well with what Nick was just talking about. So I've been working just like Nick over the last couple of years, uh, you know, on the impact of remote work on real estate valuations. And, you know, in the first paper uh, on the topic, you know, I was thinking mostly about uh, residential real estate and pandemic induced migration out of city centers into the suburbs and uh, kind of the impacts of that on both uh, house prices as well as rents. Uh, but today I'd like to focus a little bit more on some more recent work I've been doing on that studies commercial office valuations, but be happy to return to the residential real estate discussion in the Q&A. So, you know, I have this new paper, which is called The Office Real Estate Apocalypse. It's a bit of a dramatic title, and it's kind of, uh, you know, been inviting uh, some fierce criticism from folks working in, in the office sector, as you might imagine. So what we do in this paper is, you know, we, you know, the first part is, is really a descriptive part. You know, we start from looking at the Castle Turn style data that Nick also mentioned, which do indeed show a very dramatic drop in the actual physical office occupancy, as well as a very gradual and very partial recovery. Right. As Bill mentioned, as of last week, office occupancy was still only 44 percent and doesn't really seem to be trending up a whole lot. And that that jibes with surveys that people have run among, let's say, Manhattan office workers that show that only like a third of them are back in the office three days or more per week. Right. And then also jibes with what Nick was showing us about paid days work from home. You know, those metrics have all begun to stabilize, but at levels that indicate substantial remote work is here to sit. Mm-hmm. So what we the, the main data set we use in our office paper is, is this data set called CompStack, which is broker-sourced office leasing data. And leasing data are kind of interesting because office tenants have to make these multi-year commitments when they sign a new lease, right? And what these data show so far is about a 10% drop in revenue on all active leases between the end of 2019 and the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Now, remember that this stock of active leases at the end of 2021, that includes many leases that were already outstanding from before the pandemic because these leases are so long-term, right? So only about a third of leases have actually come uh, at their expiration date in 2020 and in 2021, right? And often when they did, you know, those leases were renewed, but often for a shorter term. Right. So basically, tenants were kicking the can down the road as they were figuring out their longer term office strategy. Now, what that means is that in the next two or three years, we're going to have a lot of companies that are going to be either making an active space decision for the first time since the pandemic, or they're going to have to make a long term decision as the short term contracts that they signed during the pandemic are coming up for renewal as well. Right. And so in my view, the future of office will be decided over these next two or three years. And in my mind, it may very well become a train wreck in slow motion. So this 10 percent drop in lease revenue we've seen so far, it may seem modest, but the picture actually changes dramatically when you zoom in on newly signed leases. OK, and what we find there is that the quantity of newly signed leases falls by 73 percent between December 2019 and May 2022. Okay. Now, what about rents, office rents? Well, the picture there is more nuanced because often rent reductions take the form of additional concessions, longer periods of free rent on the contract, higher tenant improvements that are paid for by the landlord. So you need to take those things into account. And there's this concept called the net effective rent that does so. And what we find is that the net effective rent on newly signed leases 
fell substantially in places like New York City and San Francisco by over 20% by the end of 2021. Now, these net effective rents have actually begun to recover somewhat in 2022. And there's a lot of variation across markets. Some markets like Miami or Austin, uh, office markets are doing quite well in that dimension. Right? So in summary, the crash so far has been one of very low new leasing volumes, low, low slow signing ups, slow renewals of existing leases, and as a result, sharply rising office vacancy rates, but less so one of, of steeply falling rents. Now, a second major theme that comes out of our data analysis is what we would like to call the flight to quality story. So this, you know, think about, you know, the the highest quality segment of the office market, call that A+. That A+, space is doing much better than the rest of the office stock, right? So that A+, space, it's typically in newer buildings, more highly amenitized buildings. And these spaces tend to attract tenants for whom office rent is not a major financial consideration. You know, think of your large tech firm, for example. And these firms are typically trying to attract talented employees to the firm for the first time, or trying to lure existing employees back to the office with with a fancy space, right? And so what we observe is that the decline in rent revenue in those places and those A-plus spaces has been much more modest and net effective rents have been falling much, much less on new contracts in those spaces. And in some cases, even rising. So then the second part of our analysis in the paper thinks about what all of that means for the valuation of office, okay? So we're basically contributing an office valuation tool uh, that could be used for valuing any building or any portfolio of buildings. And so just like any valuation model, it models out rent revenues from these staggered office leases that are gradually rolling off, as well as costs associated with running the building. And then discounts these resulting net operating income using a discount rate that's consistent with the valuation in stock and bond markets. So then we apply that model to think about how office valuations were affected by, by this working from home environment, right? And so we're going to be thinking of this remote work as a state of the world where a large mass of people do a substantial share of their work remotely or in hybrid fashion. And in that working from home state, you know, the growth rate of market rents is going to be lower. It's going to be more difficult to find to fill vacant space and lease renewals of existing tenants are going to be lower. Now, a key parameter in this valuation question turns out to be how persistent is this working from home state, right? So once the economy makes that transition to, you know, like Nick described it, 5% to a six-fold, 30%, you know, fraction of, of days work remotely among some, some groups, how likely is it that we're going to stay in that working from home state for another year? And, you know, the answer to that question is going to determine to a large extent how large the drop in office values is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to calibrate that parameter, that persistence parameter to decline in office REIT prices. REITs are publicly listed companies that own office space in 2020. Okay, and and, and we're going to assume that these REITs are actually owning mostly that, that higher quality A-plus space when we do that inference. And so we learn from that that there's substantial persistence in the data as implied by asset markets. And just to make it concrete, these numbers, the persistence implies that 10 years from now, you know, it'll be about a 25% probability that we'll still be in that working from home state. So having calibrated that model, we can now value the entire stock of office, uh, including the vast majority that's, by the way, in private hands that does not trade on the stock market and for which we don't really see any transactions. And so we calibrate our model to New York City, the world's largest office market, but we think that our conclusions apply much more broadly. And you know, our model is going to capture some of these rent dynamics from CompStack that I, that I alluded to, as well as the vacancy increases that we've seen already over the course of the pandemic. So the headline number is that you know, the office value, the stock of, of the market value of the entire stock of New York City office drops by 33% in 2020. 
And then the model simulates out for 10 years. And by 2029, it kind of predicts still a 28% decline relative to pre-pandemic values. Okay, so basically it's a permanent shock. You know, we go, we drop 33% and there's only a very modest recovery to a 28% drop. Now, a nice thing about the model we think is that there are many possible future paths for remote work, including paths where we go back to the office the way we did in 2019. Along such paths, the office market actually recovers in our model. But of course, there are many other paths where we stay in this remote work state until 2029, in which case the office decline becomes 38% instead of 28%, right? So in other words, we think of this as working from home risk, and there's a lot of risk with this transition, and the model is going to help us to quantify that risk. Okay, so a final point on the model is that we also separately value this A-plus office space, and we show that it falls you know, more modestly initially in 2020, and it actually recovers almost all of its value by 2029 along the average remote work scenario. And that's consistent with the flight to quality narrative. So the last thing I'd like to do uh, is to you know, draw a couple of broader implications uh, of these results. Right? So first of all, commercial real estate is a large asset class and office is the largest sector within it. So when office assets lose 30% of their value, that has implications for investor portfolios, maybe indirectly through pension funds. So a 30% investment loss, that's not trivial. Second, commercial real estate is funded with lots of debt, right? So if office goes down 30% in value, the debt may get in trouble. And there's some indications already from the securitization markets, you know, triple B tranches of later vintage CMBX prices for the Cognoscenti that are already flashing orange. Okay. Now, many banks are exposed to the office market debt. Uh, and some mid-sized banks actually have quite large exposures. So it's not enough maybe to trigger a financial crisis, but it's worrisome nevertheless. And then my last, you know, broader implication is, is like Nick said, it is for local public finance, right? And so, you know, we know that a lot of local governments rely heavily on tax revenue from property. Most states get the majority of their tax revenue from property taxes. New York City, for example, gets 53% of its revenue from real estate and of that 22% from office. Right? So if we think about the decline in office and the CBD retail real estate that's closely connected to it, like, like Nick mentioned, that's going to eat into these property tax revenues. Right, And so given balanced budget requirements for local governments, plugging that hole will require tax increases or spending cuts, neither of which is good for the business climate. So that risks getting us into a 1970s style doom loop of lower public amenities, think more crime, fewer buses and trains, fewer teachers, higher taxes, more out-migration of people and businesses, putting more pressure on real estate values and property tax revenues, resulting in more deficits and more cuts in public services, and so forth, right? And so some of these fiscal dynamics actually have not begun yet because of the largesse of the federal government uh, COVID bailouts, but those are about to kick in. And, you know, last thing I'll say is that local governments are not kind of bystanders in this story. They're not impotent. They can affect the fortunes of their cities through smart policy. They can help by facilitating the conversion of office space to alternative use, for example, by cutting red tape when an office owner wants to convert an A minus B C class office space to an A plus office space, or they could change zoning rules to facilitate the conversion from office to residential. That doesn't work for every office. Sometimes it's not economically feasible, but given the dearth of housing and housing affordability issues that we have, committing some public resources to effectuating that transition may be good policy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Stan. And just to to go over some of the some of the acronyms uh, you use for for those of uh, those of us in the audience who are not necessarily familiar, 
REITs are real estate investment trusts, of course, they're instruments that invest in real estate. Commercial mortgage-backed securities are CMBS, and, and what's referred to as CBD is Central Business District, of course. And this is a, a perfect setup for Andrew Ryan to talk about how this all plays out in New York City. But just first, a quick reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And this and all our past special briefings are available on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And thanks also to the Century Foundation, Volcker Alliance, and members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors for their generous support. So let's let's turn now to Andrew Ryan, who, who watches the city finances from his post running the Citizens Budget Commission. Andrew, this is this is not a particularly salubrious outlook. There's a lot of suggestions here uh, on how things may change. Uh, New York is adding a lot of office space and now trying to finance the Penn Station area redevelopment with zillions of, of more square feet of office and residential space. How does this all play out in the city short term and long term? Thanks. And uh, thanks for having me and my Fellow panelists have gone through a lot of the dynamics, so I don't have to review. I'll drill down a little. I, I want to start on the slightly flip side of the optimistic note. I think Nick has said, you know, economically, you know, there's productivity and pieces. I do think, you know, from a city point of view, who might live here that wouldn't live here before, but now they can live here and work somewhere else? There are those people. Will that be a game changer? I don't think so, but there's some of that. And perhaps there are new business opportunities and technology and services that help facilitate this. So I start on that optimistic note because it's so much easier to predict the downside than to think about and predict the upside. Because New York City should have died in the 70s for a whole bunch of uh, reasons, both of city city policy and economic shifts, but it didn't. It should have died in the 90s when agglomeration economies, because of technologies, were going to ruin its comparative advantage. It didn't. After 9-11, parts of Manhattan shouldn't have come back, but it did. Would we have become this tech hub? So it's easier to look at the potential downside than when we look at history to identify specifically what actually helped dynamism keep the city uh, going and changing. I do think it's worth looking at these post-pandemic recession context as we jump in, because some of the changes, I think, as has been implied, are kind of baked in. And the question is, what comes back? Where are we? New York City experienced the double whammy in central business districts of people not coming to their offices, as well as loss of tourists. Tourism on its way back, we had 67 million tourists in 2019, projected 56 million this year, 60 million next year. So that's getting better. There are domestic tourists who spend less time and less dollars per day. So that that's helping. So it's there are ongoing trends and it's hard to predict how they settle out. We are still down 200,000 jobs, with the logical suspects in terms of accommodation, food service, down 65,000 jobs, arts and entertainment down 22,000 jobs, retail down 39,000 jobs. It's around 120,000 of the jobs that were down. And the pandemic and recession, not just work from home, but the use case for being in the city was weakened because there were individuals and businesses that were successful without being in the office. But there is a transitioning still in process because, you know, how much does business development, productivity and employee recruitment retention, what relies on that face to face interaction? They're also during the uh, pandemic was the leap in online retail exacerbating prior trends. It's good to understand that New York. So as we look at the city, 38 percent of our, our jobs, we have 3.9 million jobs in the city. 38% are office jobs. Some other people are kind of office-like, depending on how you code them. So these are people, and we are a highly skilled, highly paid workforce. So these are people. And so the risk of people economically not being here is disproportionately higher. We have 2.5 million 
jobs in Manhattan. Now, here is the rub. 22% of those people live in Manhattan. So as they're shifting economic activity from the downtowns to the neighborhoods, there might be some decline. Maybe, my, maybe my, I don't have to get my dry cleaning or go out to lunch. And I don't know where those dollars are actually going, but there is some shift rather than decline. 45% of Manhattan workers work live in the other boroughs, as myself. You can tell I'm in my office. If this was my home, you should definitely chastise me for not uh, upgrading. But um, I, I live in my uh, Class B office and 45%, but I, I live in Brooklyn and I work in, in Manhattan, 45% live in other boroughs. So there's that shift in economic activity. That said, 380,000 Manhattan workers work elsewhere in New York State. So there's the question of that shift in economic activity. Doesn't hurt the state necessarily, but hurts the city. And 380,000 live in New Jersey and Connecticut. That's where that rub is going to, that where that is where that change in economic activity is going to hit the, the city fisc and the state fisc. We came into the pandemic recession with a, uh, a vacant storefront spotty problem around, in part for a variety of reasons, red tape and others, but also online retail. And we've seen that exacerbate. We have high housing costs, taxes, other business costs in New York exacerbating our problems. Housing supply is growing faster in New Jersey than in New York City and, and suburbs of New York exacerbating these problems. And I'll get to the race to quality. So what is the impact? Using uh, Nick's great data and our, our, our mix of workers, it looks like you know 31% fewer people on average would be working in their office in, in, in New York, but it's lumpy, as we said, on days of the week. So what is the impact? This 31% is not necessarily a, a proportionate reduction in places. There's still a question on residential demand. We have seen both anecdotally, in the, anecdotally and in the data, suburban housing markets, I think, uh, was it Nick talked about the donut effect? Suburban housing markets doing very well. And anecdotally, my staff who live in the suburbs, suddenly their, their daycares are, you know, there's more demand on their message board. There's, there's more of that. But the housing market in New York City is strong um, and it has come back. So the question is, what is that churn? Who are the people? What does that mean economically? Now, drilling down in terms of the office uses and demand, um, we, we, you know, we talked a little about this. And I think there is, I think Nick pointed out, the reduction in workdays will be a lot less than the demand in office space. Now, there has over time been the desire to shrink, but it's not going to be as, as much. Now getting to this race to quality, the existing class A and A plus, that trophy office space that Sam was uh, talking about, that's around 190 million square feet. That is generally doing well. And right to the west of me, Hudson Yards has, has been built. Five of the towers have a 4.6% vacancy rate. Three of the towers are reportedly, you know, leasing up and there's 6 million more square feet under construction. One Vanderbilt doing well. The flip side is Amazon and Facebook, which during the pandemic had expansion plans, have reduced those expansion plans. And we can read a story just today about Yelp and what's happening with their office space. So we're seeing it on both sides. But the real issue is there's going to be a bigger hit, as Sam was talking about, on Class B and C office space. We have around 220 million square feet of Class B and C office space. That's where, as the race to quality moves up, as there's more construction moving there, that's where we really have, have the question. Will we be with the reduction in need slowing down that new development, or will we really be decanting quicker that Class B and C office space? And, and the question is, what happens as that happens? Now, our property taxes in New York City is the slow and steady growth, not necessarily slow at times, growth backbone of our fisc, $31 billion of our, our $100 billion budget of our $70 billion in taxes. There's $5.8 billion of that 
is for office space, but 3.2 billion of that is that class A and trophy office space, A plus space, that is probably fairly stable as we heard. As we heard. The question is the two and a half billion dollars in revenue that comes from class B and C, what is the risk there? What will happen? Now there, there is a move, rezonings, conversions, we should not be um, under any illusion that it is not both difficult policy, economic wise, and there is a lot more of that than there's probably demand for housing and services. So what happens between conversions and what happens between teardowns and what takes that space? That is part of the, the open question. We do tax residential property at a higher rate than, than, com than commercial office space. So in the kind of theoretical sense that when some of that space converts, we could do well fiscally. On the flip side, the incentives that may be provided, the supports that may be provided when it's affordable housing and requirements there, those could totally offset and overmatch the increases in tax revenue so we could be declining. So as I said, that nut is the $2.5 billion nut. What happens to that value? And I won't go into the arcane property tax system, but remember, reductions in value does not mean reductions in levy. There are a lot of different steps in, in, in the property tax making process. In terms of residential property tax, $16 billion of, of the revenue, we have yet to be seen. There's a huge threat, and there was pre-pandemic about people moving, moving out of the city. And now, if people have to come into the city and commute in fewer days a week, you know, it's not such a cost to live further and further out. But we have seen strong residential markets, so it's yet to be seen what happens. As I said on retail and entertainment, as people are not you know, in their offices as much, there's a hit there. Basically, we've already had a 15, we've already had a 29% um, reduction in our taxable sales from entertainment, food service, and accommodation. That 29% reduction, maybe $350 million value, that already might be baked in. And remember, there's also the business side, business tax side of that. And the last two quick things I'll just mention. One is the MTA. There are 55% of pre-pandemic ridership. There's projections. There'll be new updated projections coming out of the board meeting next week. 10% of ridership is like three is like three quarters of a billion dollars in revenue. That is tough for the MTA. And finally, again, there is the threat as people move out of loss of personal income tax. We have a local personal income tax. It's not common, but we have a $15 billion revenues coming from personal income tax, a progressive tax as people leave the city. It's disproportionately hit 4.7 billion of that personal income taxes from people earning a million dollars or more. Those are people generally who have both opportunity economically and work-wise to work from home more. So there is that issue. It's a different issue for New York State, which taxes people um, who are non-residents. And though the legal basis, the convenience of the employer rule has been upheld in court, there is the other question whether businesses will set up remote offices that are bona fide remote offices and legally people can start working from those offices, that would be devastating for, for New York State. Although the early projections of that risk are probably overstated because businesses have to really think twice before setting that bona fide office to have a tax nexus in another state. That is a more complicated choice. So why don't I leave it from there? Well, thank you, Andrew. We're going to hold a bunch of these thoughts. New York, City obviously faces a, a very bumpy road uh, between all of this, something happening in the economy, a, a recession, slowdown, who knows, and the expiration of, of all the federal COVID aid. 
which has to be spent by 2026. So this is going to be a watch this space very closely. For those of you who don't know what the MTA is, that's the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, a state agency that runs the city's subways and buses, and uh, among other things, happens to owe the Federal Reserve $2.9 billion that has to be paid off fairly soon. So this is a this is a very fluid situation. One person who follows this fluid situation is Lauren Weber at the Wall Street Journal, who is writing for a global business interested audience. So Lauren, thank you for coming on and, and tell us what you know what some of your findings are. What's what what is your reporting showing? Sure. First, thanks for having me. And we've been covering the uh the sort of remote work, work from home and return to office story for a couple of years. What amazes me is how the appetite for these stories never seems to lessen. I think partly because so much of our audience is uh, they're decision makers, they're trying to figure these questions out for themselves. You know, we are covering this mostly by talking to the employers and talking to workers, so trying to get that side of it. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, two colleagues and I wrote a story about why it is that office utilization seems to be plateauing at about 40% nationally and particularly in cities like New York, San Francisco, um, Chicago, LA. And I think the latest data, uh, you know, employers sort of have not seemed to crack that number there, at least anywhere that's not Texas, where it seems like in a way the pandemic ended shortly after it began. So I think the latest numbers, and we we get this from Castle Systems, which tracks it by looking at swipes into office buildings, which of course, you know, before 9-11, we wouldn't have been able to get this data, but now that everybody has to swipe into an office, we have all this information. The most recent data is the national average for the week of July 13 was 44%. It ranged from 34.4% in San Jose to about 58% in Austin. And in New York City, it was 40.7%. And that's down from June, which based on some other reporting I've done, I think all the numbers have been coming down, partly because of COVID. You know, the BA5 subvariant of Omicron is sending a lot of people home, even though a lot of that isn't necessarily showing up in official counts of COVID infections because so many people are testing at home and not reporting. But that seems to be what's driving the current decline, plus probably vacations. When we talked to people, and we we started this story shortly after the Goldman Sachs employee was shot and killed on a on a subway, and that was I think the very end of May. And you know, at the time, the the one question was, you know, is it crime? That's you know, to what extent is crime keeping people from wanting to be in the office? There were also questions of a commute, and obviously a shooting on a subway. Those two issues intersect. That subway shooting was not the first really high-profile crime in New York that took place on a subway. There was a mass shooting. Fortunately, nobody died, but it was in, I believe, April. My own son's school was locked down at that point. Just a sense of maybe people feeling both, you know, hating their commute and also feeling a little more insecure about taking public transportation, which is a huge issue in a city where, like New York, where so many people are relying on buses and subways. Unfortunately, those two things become part of an unvirtuous circle where the more people are concerned, the fewer, you know, or the more people don't, you know, it's both ways. The more people who don't want to commute the less safe the subways and buses feel because they're emptier. I had kind of poo-pooed a little bit the the story about crime keeping people at home, just because as anybody who has lived in New York for a long time knows, crime is at historically low levels. The city has rarely been safer than it is now. And yet, you know, as I was sort of randomly interviewing 
individuals about their working preferences. The first person I spoke to was a young woman who had been put in touch with through a contact of a contact. And without knowing this going into the interview, she told me that she had been flashed on a subway on her way to work one day. She was the only person in the car along with a man. He flashed her. She was incredibly upset, got to her office, wept and didn't get on a subway for another month. So, you know, I think you know, we cannot discount that. And then, of course, the fewer people who are taking public transportation, the less safe people feel on it. So, again, it's this unvirtuous circle that, you know, sort of the effects multiply from that. But I think really a huge issue is that for employers and workers is that many workers just feel like no one's made the case for them to them for why they should actually be in the office. And I think that's especially the case for younger people, you know, who don't necessarily want to be told what to do. Many of us don't. I have a friend who is a senior manager at a nonprofit organization, and they're trying to get people back in the office at least three days a week. And the response he gets is like, but why? You know, like people feel very comfortable questioning those mandates. And again, no one's really made the case. And I think the whole notion that collaboration improves when we're in the office together, there's research sort of showing both both sides, you know, yes and no. I know for me, we're now back in the office two days a week. As you can see, I'm not there right now, but it is nice to be able to walk over to my editor's desk when he's there, but, you know, he's maybe not there the same two days that I'm there. So, you know, again, like people feel like, why should I be in an office if I'm going to spend most of my time on the phone with my coworkers or even worse on a Zoom call with my coworkers, you know, so that there's that issue. I think, you know, Employers are trying all kinds of things. They are, I mean, you know, and again, I can use my own company. We have pizza lunch once a week. We have donuts in the morning. We have snacks. It doesn't necessarily seem to be enough to, to bring people back in. What's nice is when there is a sense of camaraderie and you, know, you, you are, and there's a critical mass of people. But again, with the way many companies are doing these mandates, it's like, you choose which two or three days you want to be in the office. That doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to be there with the people you want to see. Now, of course, a lot of companies do. You try to be there on the same days as your teams. So, you know, I think, again, employers are really trying to crack this code, have not figured it out. I think another part they have not figured out is working parents. And I don't know if that's, I, I got, a, I joined late, so I'm not sure if that came up already. But for those of us who have kids, there is something enormously helpful about the flexibility and employers have started to recognize that and, and respond to it, but national policy has not kept up. And you just have to be fortunate enough to work for a company that is understanding of those issues. So I'll just leave it there, hopefully raising some of the issues that may not have come up before. And I think now I'll turn it over for the Q&A. Thanks so much, Lauren. You brought up an issue that I, I want to actually start off our uh, our Q&A with. This is Special Briefing coming to you from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And I'm wondering about this as a work from home as a generational issue. Uh, you mentioned it. Jillian Tett had a very good column a couple of days ago in the Financial Times about this. Many CEOs tend to be older. They came up the, through the ranks in a office environment where you had your crew around you. Now you have younger workers who are who are saying, it, it, as you said, how do I benefit from this? Where's my child care? I live my life online anyway. Why do I need to, to live a second life in the office? I know, Nick, you've you've looked at this and Lauren, you've looked at this. You know, guys, talk a little about, about this, this very important generational shift. 
Sure. I don't know, Nick, you would probably know if there's more conclusive evidence on this, but I have honestly seen data sort of showing both sides that it's younger people who want to be in the office, younger people who don't want to be in the office, older people want to be in, older people don't. Some of that has to do with maybe, you know, susceptibility to infection. And some of that might've changed over the course of the pandemic. But, um, you know, what I see you know, a lot of younger people, I think there's a concern of missing out on mentoring, missing out on FaceTime with managers. So at the, I think there's sort of a, both a sense of, again, I don't want to be told what to do. I want the flexibility and the freedom. But also, I think maybe um, for some people, especially maybe more ambitious people, a feeling that if I'm not in the office, I'm missing out on career development. That's a very important point. I, I know, Nick, you, you've delved into that in, in some of your research uh, also. And, and the issue about bosses, like line bosses, who get the message from the CEO and then just look the other way. No, absolutely. Whenever I talk to Lauren, we're totally aligned. So I, I learn a lot, actually. It's like fantastic talking to. Yes. So younger people seem to be more moderate. So on the one end, younger people are you know, there's very few young people that want to be fully in the office five days a week. There's also very few younger people that want to be in working from home five days a week for the reasons Lauren went into, in the sense that mentoring is much better face to face. And also younger people tend to just not have nearly as nice homes. I mean, you're living in a small, I was talking to someone yesterday, I said, when she started a job, she basically put in a fake wall in a one bed apartment in New York. And the two of them had this like half a bed each. So what you tend to see in the data is see you know if you look at kind of 50 plus they tend to be uh more likely to be in favor of full fully remote or fully in person they're much more heterogeneous and typically people in their 20s have a preference for two three four days a week and work there's just not as many of them that are either extremes they don't have young kids is another reason if you you know if you have young kids you often want to be at home five days a week so younger people are in that sense more more predictable they're more in the center actually they're, they're big fans of hybrid whereas the older CEOs are bigger fans of either fully remote or fully in person. We don't know where this is going, obviously, over the long term. I sense some some differences in conclusions, maybe between Andrew and, and, and Stan and, and Nick, over where the office, where the office market is headed. Is this exclusively a high-class central business district office issue, or is it more widespread? And do we do we need to be worried about loan defaults, property values plunging, and, and, and so on? For, for Stan and Andrew, am I correct is, is, that there's, a, there's kind of a, 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 fuzzy, uh, a fuzzy area here? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one interesting thing that came up in our discussion, I thought, was this question about what is the relationship between the fraction of time that is worked remotely and the proportional de- reduction in demand for office, right? That kind of mapping, I think, is critical for understanding the future of office. And I am much less sanguine than Nick, for example, uh, on this on this question. And I think, you know, you know, this is a statistic I mentioned, you know, the new leasing activity is down 73%. That is just an incredible number. If you know, even if that rebounds substantially, you know, what that tells us is that you know there's just not enough new companies coming in, or the existing ones are signing leases for less space. They're somehow figuring out that they can do with a lot less space. You know, the office owners want to believe the story that as long as we're all in the office on Wednesday for one hour per week, we need just as much space as we do when everybody's there all the time. But that's just not true. That it cannot possibly be correct. So, so the question is, what is that mapping? It's somewhere between these two extremes. 
I think the new the tenants are voting with their feet. There are many companies like Yelp that have decided to go fully remote. There are many more that are figuring out how to stagger office use. So I think that is, I think, uh, a, a key question, a key, a, a key statistic. I also would posit that, and we've all been through this in, in I don't know, 30 months or whatever, I, I'm losing track. Ever, every time we think there's enough stasis to have a good sense of something, there has been change. And I do think that both on the individual basis, as we were talking about the young people and on the leasing activity, I think people are making those decisions and they are long run decisions. I do think that there's a lot of change still to come that I can't predict which way it goes. And I can I can draw the, the logic path both ways. That's not a problem. <laughs> um, Stan, that's why I love your, your research because you know we have to keep looking at data, but we have to keep looking at it because I do think I do think there are changes. And as we both talked about, it's interesting to see what this race to quality will be. We have space under construction, still class A and, and, and A plus office space under construction plan, plans for more. And people who do this for a living have been very successful, you know, b- believe that I, I don't necessarily see the path, but some of that might be timing. But then the real question as, as I, which is why I highlighted the underlying issues in New York, which is the class B and class C office space, because we don't know what the future looks like. Because there will be some conversions. There will be some space for new startups and stuff like that. But there's a lot more of that space than probably is necessary for all those, even in a growth economy. You know, one of our listeners asked, what does this mean for, for small businesses, especially urban small businesses, but wrap the, the, the suburbs in there too, small businesses, business districts, micro entrepreneurs, right down to the right down to the people who start out with one one food truck and and end up with a fleet. Uh, I'm thinking of the halal guys who are now they started out with one food truck and now they're now they're a vendor in Yankee State Yankee Stadium. What does this mean for for people like this who really de- depend on on population density? I mean, I think many of these folks got hammered, right? Like the CBD retail, especially the small guys, you know, the, the the restaurant operators and so forth. They got absolutely clobbered during the COVID pandemic. Some of that activity shifted geographically towards the suburbs, but probably only a small portion, because as you mentioned, a lot of that depends on density. Eric Adams put out a report. I can't remember exactly when, but maybe it was part of the blueprint of New York City, but that I think 26,000 small businesses closed during the pandemic. You know, I can't remember if that was just the entire pandemic or maybe the first year or something, but 26,000 is a lot of people who shut down their businesses. And I think that was the net number. On the other hand, I also interviewed somebody who had a lunch focused restaurant downtown. And then just a few months ago, opened another location near Grand Central. So some people are clearly counting on it coming back, you know, enough business coming back. And the city controller, Brad, Brad Lander, just put out data the other day and rough numbers. I think 5,100 decline in, in entities, business entities in Manhattan in the last two and a half years, roughly, and a 1,300 increase in Brooklyn, talking about that shift. And I think a small, small increase in the Bronx. So I do think people got hammered, but I do think the entrepreneurial spirit somehow, this is where I'm saying the unpredictability, we will sit here in two years and there will be some of these like small lunch places or whatever, and people will find opportunities. It's, it's kept us alive for 400 years in New York. And I, I don't mean to be doe-eyed in this kind of cheerleading optimism. I'm just looking at the history of why we should be dead 100 times over. In terms of nationally, across the U.S., business creation is dramatically up. So if you look at the census data on the number of EINs applied for, which is you know one indicator of new businesses, particularly those that are going to employ someone, it's way, way up. 
So, you know, it's hard to tell what's going on. One, I think one driver is actually work from home makes it much cheaper to start new businesses. So there's a lot of people that, I agree, not if you're a halal track in central, you know, Manhattan, but for a lot of folks, it reduces the fixed costs and, you know, cloud. There's a lot of things you'd have to pay for. Andrew is talking about it in the pre-discussion. There's a big shift from people, if you're working from home three days a week, you maybe go down to the local shopping center or go eat out there or, you know, Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever it is. So what may be going on is nationally, there's more stuff starting. I agree in the center of big cities, particularly actually San Francisco, by the way, I think is the worst hit. Because if you look across industries, it was fascinating. Stin mentioned in terms of fully remote tech firms. Like when everyone talks about fully remote companies, they always use tech. So tech is just so different from the rest of industries. You see it in the data. So New York, I think, is less. I mean, I, I agree with Andrew. I don't think New York's doomed at all. There's going to be a bit of a shifting out, but it's nothing major. The one city I guess I worry about, and I think Lauren mentioned the data, is San Jose, San Francisco, because they're so tech focused. And tech is the one industry we're seeing people going fully remote and entirely closing offices. Question about commuting and transportation. We're getting close to the top of the hour. There seems to be some kind of a rough correlation between lousy commutes and propensity to work from home. Um, you know, New York, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, all these involve long commutes to central business districts as opposed to Austin, say, or Austin, Houston, Dallas. I wonder if if there's a if there's a relationship there. Not that anything can be done about it necessarily, but you know, there you are. How many people are going to be willing to to continue at a two or two and a half hours or three hours a day on on the train, bus, and subway if you've already tasted the delights of working uh, working from your spare bedroom? I think that's driving some of the real estate decisions. I spoke to one company, you know, that mapped out where its people were commuting from and ended up renting a space very close to Grand Central. And so I think like near those hubs, Grand Central, maybe Penn Station, you'll see probably, and the real estate experts here can speak to that better than I can. But, you know, from my interviews, what it sounded like was employers are now looking at how can we cut down on our people's commute to make it easier for more appealing for them. Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, you know, and around Penn Station, we have a whole bunch of new office development coming up in the next few years that can only be justified based on an argument like the one that Lauren just made. You know, the other thing we are seeing is sometimes employers trying to open satellite suburban office hubs, again, depending on where their employees are. In my view on this is that people have always hated commuting. They've always thought it was a terrible waste of time, both for their personal and for their professional productivity, for their personal life and their professional productivity. And now they're finally freed up uh, to, to stop doing some of that and without employers punishing them for it. So, you know, in my mind, this this changes who lives in the city. I think people who there's, you know, some of us hate commuting more than others. Those of us who hate commuting the most can now live in the suburbs. And then, you know, other people could potentially now move in their place to the city. So it, it reshapes who lives where. Well, thanks. I think we're going to we're going to wrap it up there because we're getting close to the, the the top of the hour. This has been a great discussion. A reminder that it's all archived and this one will be up in a couple hours on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And before we go, please take a look at, our, at the contact information for all of our speakers. That'll be in the archive version as well. If you want to follow up, please do subscribe to the journal, get Andrews and and Stans and Nick's uh, Nick's various research re reports. Please watch the the Volcker Alliance and Penn Institute for Urban Research for uh, for research papers as well. 
I want to give my thanks, as always, to Susan Wachter, who couldn't be with us. Her advice and wisdom, especially on this subject today, have been invaluable. And thanks to our panelists, and of course, to those of you in the audience. Thank you also to the Century Foundation, Volcker Alliance, and members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors for their generous support. And of course, thanks to our peerless Volcker Alliance production team, Noah and Ritzenberg, Adam Campaglio, Graham Dowd, Emily Eaton, and to members of the Penn IUR crew as well. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.